Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. And the anger is integral to this event, the anger of Christ. And so I don't know of an angry school crossing guard, you know? So I thought maybe it could be a traffic cop with a gun, right? You've been in downtown Chicago, there was this dancing cop, but he had a gun. Yeah, he he'd choreographed the, <laughs> all the traffic going through the intersection by his dance moves. He was famous there. I don't, I suspect he's gone long gone, but he was known for being right downtown in the loop. But he had a gun, and so there was not just this sweet guy, but there was a guy who was protecting the pedestrians. He was being interesting, and he had a gun. And I thought to myself, but that's not quite the accurate. Because I've never seen, I never saw him pull his gun, you know. He had a gun, but I don't think in his entire career as a, as a traffic policeman in downtown Chicago, he ever pulled his gun. And so the best I could do in my mind as I thought about it were the Marines on the roof of the embassy in Vietnam, the end of the, the tragic end of the, the American war in Vietnam, when everything went to pot and things fell apart. And people were streaming to the embassy to get out. And the Viet Cong, the uh, hidden enemy that was everywhere in South Vietnam, were chasing and trying to grab people and to, to kill people. And people were trying to get away. And you know, if you were alive in those days, and maybe you've seen the pictures today or the television shows on it, you know how the Marines stood up there and guarded the top of that embassy and actually used their guns to usher people to safety. And that's about as close as I can get to Jesus here because Jesus here is acting in a way that is absolutely typical for him. And yet when we consider it, it's, it's a terrible surprise to our effeminized age that Jesus would act this way and expect his followers to behave like he behaves on this occasion. Now, you remember that Jesus began his, his career. We didn't see it in Matthew, but if you've read the Bible, you should remember that his, his career, his ministry, his years of active ministry began with him going to Jerusalem on the Passover. John tells us about it, and he tells us that when he went to Jerusalem at the very beginning of his work as the Messiah in public, the Passover, the new Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. So we have a sense of the variety of this scene. Oxen, oxen are not small animals. I don't know if you've been around an ox recently, but they are pretty big and strong and stubborn. And he went there and in the temple were those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. And the money changers seated at their tables and he made a scourge of cords. He made a whip out of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He's driving humans as well as sheep and oxen out of the temple. You would think that he should not be driving the sheep and the oxen. After all, is it their fault but he drives them all. 
And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. It's now three years later. People have come to know the legend of Jesus. Come to know the character of of this son of David. He's approaching the temple again with the Passover near. And he again does as they should have expected. It should have been expected that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, that the temple merchants would pack up their bags and take a a three-day siesta or something. But they are still there, and he comes in, and he does exactly the same thing at the end of his life that he did at the beginning of his public ministry. He is not, however, just driving out. He is also defending He is standing up for certain people, even as he is attacking others. He is standing up for the crippled, the lame, the sick, the children. He's standing up for them. When the attack of the Pharisees comes against the children by him, saying, look at what they're calling you. Look at these children. And they're angry at Jesus, but their attack is on the children. When that happens, he stands up for the children, and he says to the Pharisees, Are you not aware of what the Bible says? That out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have ordained praise for yourself? Jesus is defending. Jesus is constantly defending as he attacks. Jesus, every attack is also a defense. He's never just attacking. There are principles and people that he's standing for when he attacks. And they are important enough to him that he is willing to attack. So we read in Luke of Jesus again in the temple with his disciples. And they're watching the people who are putting their gifts into the treasury. And he sees a poor widow putting in two small, tiny copper coins. And he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Understand that what Jesus says to his disciples about this this poor woman is a comparison. It is not simply a commendation. This woman is great. She gave everything that she has. It's a comparison. And there's a negative comparison portion of that comparison she's compared to all the others who are putting in out of their wealth and he says nah and yes it's not just yes it's no and yes no Jesus is not standing up for his own rights in the temple and in these conflicts he's standing for others he is standing for things and it's not himself and his own prerogatives, but it's for others. Again, in the temple, Jesus tells a story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who were in the temple. He says two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. Now my mother used to say to me, David, comparisons are odious. Don't compare yourself to others. Don't compare others to others. They're unkind. Usually there's a positive and there's a negative. My mother was generally right in what she challenged me to do, and in that she was right in general. But it's not the life of Jesus, because Jesus is constantly making comparisons. And again, we see one in this story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. One goes to heaven. One is justified. One goes to hell. One is embraced. And despite the attack of the world on the one, despite the Pharisee saying he's slime, Jesus says, no, he's not slime. He's in heaven. And you are the one who is slime. He says it. He's negative. He says no as well as yes. One side is justified. One side is defended. One side championed by Christ. But Jesus doesn't do that alone. He also opposes and rejects and condemns. There is a, an image as well that comes to my mind when I look at this passage and think of Jesus here in the temple and it's a, a compilation on YouTube. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's called Dad Reflexes. How many of you have seen this video on the internet, Dad Reflexes? It's this marvelous set of home videos of fathers just out of the blue seeing something bad happening to one of their kids and grabbing them or catching them or just out of the blue catching the kid and saving the kid from harm. And it's real, you know, it's obvious, grainy old footage, it's, it's clear family videos, but it's a picture of what the father is called to do. Hey, I know, I understand that you say, well, David, this is mother's as well, and of course it is. I was in Denali National Park years ago when a sow grizzly, a mother grizzly, walked through the campsite as far as I'm sitting from Luke, and three little grizzlies trailing behind her. She walked through the campsite right as we were standing there cooking dinner. Well, you don't get between a, a sow grizzly, a mama grizzly, and her, and her cubs. Everyone knows it. The dad grizzly, he's out. He doesn't care. All right? The mama grizzly, she will kill you if you come near those cubs. Just amazing stories of what a mother grizzly will do to protect her cubs. The difference is that God in the person of Jesus Christ is standing with anger to protect. He is seeing enemies and foes beforehand. He is standing against them. And he, unlike the mother grizzly, goes to his death to protect them. He goes to his death because he sees real enemies and he is zealous for his, his family and his father. Zeal, the zeal of Christ is on display here. The zeal to protect. His care for the, the blind and the lame who came to him, his care for the children who are criticized is matched by his attack on the money changers, the attack on the, the merchants, his attack in the week to come on the Pharisees. It is the nature of God to defend innocence and to care for the helpless and to attack 
those who would hurt them, to attack those who would harm the children of God. Fathers, this is especially a calling for you. Men, this is your calling. It is not simply to defend, but it's to take proactively the fight to the foe. To recognize the foe, to call it out for what it is, and then as Christ does here, to go on the attack and say, I am going to intervene. I am going to put myself on the line. These are dad reflexes. It's the kind of moving to the offense that Jesus does here. Because one thing we need to understand is it would have been very easy and probably done by a million people every year in Jerusalem to look at this scene that Jesus looks on of the sales going on and of the coins being changed and the cattle and all this and to say, ah, not my monkey, not my circus, you know, <laughs> not real edifying, not a real cool scene, but you know, <laughs> so... <laughs> Say la vie, you know, these things go on and, and we go on and I go into the temple and I do my business and they don't have a beef with me and I don't have a beef with them. I may not like them being there, but it's really not my business. These people don't give a rip about Jesus. They don't want to fight him. They don't want to see him being crucified at the start of the week. They don't care. Yeah, that, all they care about is making their money. They're in the temple, and it's their living. That's all. They don't care about Jesus. They have no beef with Jesus. The Pharisees do. These people, they're winnable, you would think. They're, you know, normal people, not religious fanatics. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about him one bit, but he cares about them. He cares about them, in a negative way. He is not in favor of them. He has a beef with them, even if they don't have one with him. And how intensely does Jesus oppose these men? Well, think about it. Jesus is, throughout his, his ministry, engaging in conflict. Conflict after conflict, and it will become the, the running refrain of this last week of his life. But it's conflict after conflict after conflict, he opposes demons, he cleanses the temple, he does many, many different things, but on this occasion and on the previous one, when he cleansed the temple with a whip, Jesus is actually more violent than he ever was with any of the demons. He never took a whip to a demon drove them out in fact when they asked to go into the the pigs he said all right but on this occasion he just takes a whip to them and to their animals and he casts them out of the temple he is determined it's a scene of physical turmoil of judgment of anger and actually even of violence Jesus is angry Jesus is determined and because of the determined anger of Jesus, there are animals squawking, bulls and oxen and sheep are running. There is money rolling around in the courtyard of the temple. It is a riot, a one-man riot of destructive, violent, angry action. Not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, of 
evangelical portraiture. Not the Jesus so sweet that butter would not melt in his mouth, who knows no anger of evangelical preaching. Not the gracious, kind, come to me, Jesus, of the average evangelical church today, but this is a red-blooded Jesus, a man in full vigor of his manhood, chasing enemies out and hitting them. You say, David, it doesn't say hitting them. That's extrapolation. He took a whip the last time he did this, and he used it. Look, I want to say something to you. In the world we live in today, the broad world, narrow it down to the Christian world, narrow it down to the, the, the evangelical world, narrow it down to the reformed world, it doesn't matter where you are. In the world that we live in today, the Western world, in this world, anger and zeal are seen as sin. So the best way to, to lose an argument is to get angry. Ah! He's angry. He's, he cares too much. This is, this, is, this is not true. He just lost. Look how angry he got. So recently the Pope was visiting an Orthodox headquarters in Greece. You know, one of these interfaith things that the Pope does from time to time. Sometimes he does it with the Orthodox. Sometimes he does it with the Muslims. Rarely does it with the Protestants. He was there in this in this historic headquarters of the Greek Orthodox Church. And as he entered the building, maybe you saw it this past week, there was this older Greek Orthodox priest, an old man with a long gray beard, sort of wizened, you know, uh, older, dried up, had black robes on, and I think he had something on his head. And he stood there outside this kind of feeble old man, yelling at another feeble old man, the Pope, and he was going, Papa, heretic. <laughs> I don't remember what the Greek word, the modern Greek word was, but it was heretic. But Papa was going, Papa, heretic. Papa. And the whole world stopped. Christians aren't supposed to be angry. Men of God aren't supposed to be yelling at each other. What is this guy doing? And of course, the security goons come in. They hustle him off. They, I don't think they meant to. They knock him to the ground. The whole time he's yelling, Papa, as he's lying on the ground. Papa, heretic. <laughs> he wants the world to know that the Pope is a heretic. <laughs> this is a man who's not afraid to make a judgment and to display it before the world. What about you? Do you know why Donald Trump is loved by Americans? Not because of his character. Not because anyone thinks that this is a good man. There's no way on earth to think of Donald Trump as being a good man. I hope I don't offend you by saying this, but the things I've said in the past about Donald Trump, I stand by. He's an evil man who gives in to his passions and his lusts over and over. But for many, many years, the people in this country who hate the sin of abortion, who are troubled by the way that our country is going, have longed and looked for a deliverer. And every one of them understands that when the deliverer arises, he's going to have to be angry. 
because we've had too many pretend deliverers who have no anger and no zeal. Every Republican president of my lifetime has promised to do things, but they didn't care. Am I making sense? They didn't care. They had no zeal for the, the innocent children being killed. They had no zeal. So they were so zealous that from Ronald Reagan through the bushes, the wife could say, I'm in favor of abortion. The husband would say, I'm against abortion. Have you ever known a marriage where there's any zeal for righteousness, where the two aren't combined? No zeal. And suddenly Donald Trump comes along and he's angry. And people are saying, give me an angry man, even if he's a wicked man, right? I'll take an angry man because the only way we're going to get out of the situation we're in is with zeal and anger. And you say, David, angry, well, don't you know the Bible verse that says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be become angry James writes it because the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God and I say yes it's true when our anger is selfishly motivated but do you know what the Bible says about Jesus on these occasions when he was clearly angry I'm hoping that all of you understand Jesus is clearly angry here there's no way to conceive of him going, engaging in these acts with a smile on his face and without his hair being mussed up. So what does the Bible say? Well, the disciples on the first occasion he did this and he turned over the tables and knocked away the doves and drove out the sheep and the oxen and poured out the coins, did all this stuff. He said, take these things away, stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered that David had written in a psalm that the Messiah, when he came, would have zeal for the house of God. Jesus is consumed with zeal for the house of God because he loves his father. And he loves the people who are going to come to him in that house. He loves his father. He loves those he's been sent to. This is the truth of the temple. It was a destination, had a colonnaded portion, huge outer courtyard, which is the court of the Gentiles. And if you've been up there, you know in its vastness, there's lots of areas that could be set apart for changing coins to the coinage that was required by the temple for the temple tax, not just the offerings, the temple tax. What was required was the Tyrian from Tyre, the Tyrian two drachma coin. Roman coins, coins with Caesar's image, and with legends on them often proclaiming the Caesar to be divine, were not acceptable for this tax. So there were money changers. And there were also cattle and pigeon sellers for those who wanted to make offerings. Now the charge Jesus makes here is different than what he makes at the beginning of his, of his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, he says that you have turned it into a place of business. You have stopped making my father's house a place of business. Here in this passage, Jesus says to the, the people, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. So the, it's a place of business, but it's a robber's den. And what we can understand is that this was a, probably a 
a licensed activity by the priests in the temple because the priests have control over the temple and what takes place within it. It was the history of Israel that this was the case. And one other time in the, in the nation of Israel's history, we see during the time of Ezra that the priests have allowed uh, an ungodly man to take up his residence and his business in the temple. And God has him cast out just as forcibly as this man, as these people are cast out by Jesus. So why would the priests allow something like this? Because they're getting money from it. They're obtaining money by allowing a portion of the temple to be used for these purposes. Does God not want people to offer offerings? Is God opposed to commerce? Does God not like people to sell oxen and sheep and pigeons to those who need them who come from long distances to the temple and can't bring it themselves? No, the law of God foresaw that need. It said bring your money and then come and buy and offer. That was entirely foreseen. What Jesus did not want, what Jesus with fire in his soul opposed was the turning of the house of God into a temple of commerce making money on the things of God so do we have a reason for zeal today Christian those of you who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ you men in particular do we have a reason for anger at the house of God turning into a temple of commerce have you ever looked at the church you're a part of our church you know one thing over the years I've seen in the church that people will always complain if there's any money in the church. But they don't see the bigger picture of the whole church being about money. You know, I give money to someone because I forgot to give it to them and I bought something from them. I had people challenge me for that on a Sunday. You shouldn't do that. That's business in the temple. I think that's nonsense. It has nothing to do with Jesus and what he's complaining about. It's not a den of robbers. It's a dead I.O. Right? I'm not stealing from you. I'm not detracting from the glory of God. But have you ever looked at the larger world and thought with the same negativity that you may have thought about things that go on like little transactions of the sort I just described in the church? For instance, have you ever gone to a bookstore and seen there a study Bible that is put out and called the so-and-so study Bible named after a man? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever thought to yourself, why does he put his name on the word of God? Have you ever looked at him and his signature written across the cover, the blank, blank, study Bible, as though he's the author of the word of God? Why does he do this? Because we love our money and because there's no one zealous for God to say to him, you wicked man, you wicked man, stand back from the glory of God, stand away from the holy things, it is not yours. The love of money of the evangelical church is a curse. We are a den of robbers, we have made the house of God about business, and we care more for our money than we do for the holiness of God and for the poor people who live around us every day and who are being shut out because all we care about are our wallets and our nice Christian lives. 
what makes this violence by Jesus all the more remarkable and noteworthy is that this temple only has four days to live. You say, wait a second, you mean Jesus only has four days to live, David? That's what you really mean. I say, no, this temple only has four days to live. We're in the last days of the temple. On the day that Jesus dies, God, by his sovereign power, rips the curtain of the temple that divides the holiest place, the holy of holies, from the sanctuary, rips it in down the middle saying this is end Ichabod it is over and yet four days from the end Jesus is in there casting people out saying as long as this is a house of God we will worship God in here what zeal are you leading with in your home then is there any holy zeal that motivates you and it's discernible to your children or is your zeal strongest when Ohio State is playing a football game what zeal is there what's your zeal what are you fanatical about what will you go to war over the glory of the Sal Grizzly is that she'll go to war over her cubs but the male Grizzly He'll only go to war over himself. Understand? He'll only go to war for his own benefit. He doesn't really care about the young buck cubs. And that's you and me so often. Zeal for the house of God was in Jesus and everything he did. And zeal for the children. Zeal. Zeal. So he's angry. He's violent. He's an aggressor. You know, I want to close by reading just a little bit from the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And I want you who... You who don't have any great, glorious zeal in your heart to hear these words. Those of you who have not fought for the glory of God recently. Those of you who have not challenged threats to your family. Those of you who just take things as they come. Kierkegaard, this philosopher in the late 1800s, was a Christian. But he was a critic of the church. And he wrote in his book these words. It is a dangerous business to arrive in eternity with possibilities that you have prevented from becoming actualities. Possibility is a hint from God, a person must follow it. The possibility for the highest is in every soul, you must follow it. If God does not want it, then let him hinder it. If God does not want it, then let him hinder it. You must not hinder it yourself. Trusting in God, I have ventured, but I failed. There is peace and rest in God's confidence in that. But if I have not ventured, it is an utterly unhappy thought and a torment for all eternity. 
understand what he's saying. He's saying, take a stab at it. God is only found, glory is only achieved by taking a stab at it. Do not stand back and say, well, I don't think I should. If there's a possibility, chase it down. Practicing Christian faith, he writes, is not very useful and it's highly impractical. Indeed, is there anything more impractical than offering one's life for the truth? Is there anything more foolish than not looking to one's own advantage? Is there anything more ridiculous than making one's life difficult and strenuous and being rewarded with insults? Is there anything more impractical than being labeled not with titles and honors, but with abuse and ridicule? We delude ourselves into thinking that to refrain from venturing is modesty and that it must please God as humility. No, no. Not to venture means to make a fool of God because what he is waiting for is for you to go forth. Then the character of our church day in his next paragraph. We all know what it is to play warfare in mock battle. It means to mimic everything just as it is in war. The troops are drawn up. They march into the field. Seriousness is evident in every eye, but, they, but also courage and enthusiasm. The orderlies rush back and forth intrepidly. The commander's voice is heard. The signals, the battle cry, the volley of shooting, the thunder of cannon, everything exactly as in war, lacking only one thing, the danger. So it is with playing Christianity. That is imitating by way of Christian preaching in such a way that everything, absolutely everything is included in as alluring a form as possible, only one thing is lacking, the danger, the danger, the danger. Until we embrace danger, until we have a holy zeal for God, we're not acting as men and we're not following Christ. Christ was zealous for his Father's glory for the children, the lame, the blind, and he opposed everyone who didn't care about them with violence, with a holy anger. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the example that it provides us of Christ being zealous. And I pray, Father, that you will forgive my life that has sought ease and relief and comfort and has been wary, reluctant to go into danger. Father, people are dying, children are being murdered. Our world is evil and we have the truth. May we stand, Father, as men, seeing the future, understanding your son's ultimate victory Therefore, Father, living in opposition with zeal for you in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.